The scripture for today's reading is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 4, 7. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in the age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, or of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Katie. Good morning, church. We okay? It's good to be with you guys today. And um, hey, I don't say that as a warm pastoral way to open things. It really is a joy and a privilege to open God's word with you today. If you're new or first time back in a while, my name is Chad Kinsler. I serve as one of our pastors. And if you've got a Bible, open to the passage that was just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 7. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, there's a lot of work ahead of us, so I want to jump right into it. And let's pray together. If you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you. And uh, we'll see how God would shape us by his word. I want to encourage you to take a second in just the sacred space of this moment and just ask God to speak to you today. And if you're up for it, ask him... uh, Ask him to help you to drop anything in your life that he'd want you to drop. And then maybe one more. Just ask him to fill you with anything he wants to fill you with today and that you would receive it. Agree with him. Our Father, we come to you in the strong name of your Son and our Lord Jesus. We come boldly, we come with confidence before your throne that you hear us and you receive our prayers because we're praying in his name and underneath and in behind his work for us. And so, Father, we ask this hour that you'd help us. We'd ask this hour that you would adjust us. We ask this hour that you would help us to surrender to you. We trust that through your scriptures today, that what you say of them is actually true, that they won't return empty, that they'll actually accomplish every purpose for which you give them to us. 
And so would you spike up our attention where we're dulled and callous today? Would you enlarge our heart's affections for your son Jesus? Would you adjust our mind's perspective on the world as we would see it through him? And would you fill up what's lacking in my preaching? God, would you do what only you can do and that's bring spirit-empowered change to us? And so we offer this prayer in Jesus' name and all God's church together said, amen, amen. One of my friends and uh, one of our pastors, Jonathan Poe, uh, he's been around here for a while, you might know him. He, he's an optometrist. He's been serving as an optometrist working in our city for over a decade. And he's told me before that one of the reasons he moved forward in his education uh, to study optometry, eventually take up that vocation, was because the eye in his study and in his exploration, the eye is one of the most fascinating organs in our body that helps us to take in the majesty of God, his creativity in the world, maybe as much or more than any other part of our body. And I told him this week that he'd be a part of my sermon introduction. And he, he said, hey, tell him, tell him that. Tell him why I wanted to take up optometry. But also tell him, honestly, I knew medicine was in the future for me, but I just didn't want to look at like rashes or janky teeth all day. And so I thought I would take up the study of eyes. But here's what he does. He spends his days helping people to see. That's what he does. He spends his days helping people to see. Some people come into his office and they need just an adjustment on their prescription. Some people come into his office and they need much larger work done to them to heal from an injury or unhealth. Some people come in and get glasses for the first time and they'll tell him, maybe you've had this experience like I've had where you're like, I can see things that I've not seen as clearly ever before. I thought trees were just sort of a green blob out there. I didn't know you could actually see leaves, you know. He has this experience with people and his patients. And I offer that because that's a bit of what Paul's doing in our passage today for the Corinthian church then and for you and me today. Our vision, you and me, our vision of God and ourselves is too easily blurred by the chaos of this world, isn't it? It's blurred. But it's not just blurred because the world is chaotic. It's also blurred because you and I have pride in our eyes. We think too much of ourselves. And like a good optometrist, here's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in our passage today. For some of us in this passage, you and I are going to get a vision adjustment. We just need an adjustment to see things where we've seen them clearly and it's been a bit blurred. He's going to bring us back. For others, there'll be an invitation today to heal from unhealth or from injury. Maybe in the church. Maybe you've seen God's church or God's people or God's leaders go, go a bit sideways and there'll be an invitation to heal. And I think for others of us today, there's something toward the end of our time together that, at least for me, it was something I saw clearly for the first time. And maybe it'll be like getting a pair of glasses and you're going, I, I see the gospel in a bigger way than I've ever seen before. Paul's offering that to us. And the reason he's doing all of these things is so that you and I could enjoy the power of God's good news again. Maybe you've been in the church for a long time. Maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're pretty new, but the things of Jesus are dull to you. They're, they're familiar to you. They, they don't wow you anymore. Hey, the reason that Paul's trying to do some vision work for us today is so that we could actually enjoy the good news of God's work again, the power of what he brings into the world through Jesus. And so the church has been blinded. This church in Corinth had been blinded by their love for worldly wisdom, and it had caused all sorts of divisions in their unity and unhealth in the way they related to leaders in the church. And we've been in this section for the past few weeks and Paul's drawing it to a close today 
in our passage. So there's three moves in our time together, three ways we're going to navigate this passage. The first is this. Paul's going to give us a deception to be avoided. He's going to give us a deception to be avoided. Second, he's going to give a direction on how to receive leaders. And then thirdly, he's going to give us an assurance to be embraced. So a deception to be avoided, a direction on how to receive leaders, and then finally an assurance to be embraced. Jump in with me in verse 18, and we'll talk about this deception to be avoided. He says, let no one deceive himself. Big declaration to start the passage. I want everyone to see clearly. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, I'm gonna say, let him become a fool that he might actually become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. And so Paul's pulling together the work he's been doing for the last two and a half chapters on divisions and church leadership. And what he's doing in this beginning passage today is he's circling back to language he used at the beginning to drive home the point. It's sort of like a bookend from where we started. He says, if you remember back in chapter one, verse 18, he said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That, that God's wisdom in the world is actually foolishness to the world, to the perishing. But in this passage, he flips that statement using the same language in verse 19. And he says, yeah, but the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness with God. <laughs> so it may be that God's wisdom is foolish to the world, but the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And so he begins with this big declaration, I don't want anyone to be deceived. Let no one deceive himself. This comes off the heels of where we ended our passage last week. It says, if anyone wants to destroy the church, which is God's temple, if anyone wants to destroy the church, hey, hey um, the prophetic warning was, you'll be destroyed last week. And so we're not playing games here. This isn't like just sort of a suggestion. This is, this is serious stuff. This has eternal consequences. So Paul starts with this big declaration coming off that prophetic warning. Let no one be deceived. The wisdom of man can't unfold the soul and achieve peace like it wants. The strength of man can't unlock the good life, can it? We've all tried and couldn't get there. That the effort of man alone can't work its way into God good, God's good graces, no matter how hard you try. That's, that's the futile attempts of man-centered religion. And so some of you might hear this, I realize from the beginning, and you go, hey, I hear what you're saying, but I disagree with what you're saying. <laughs> you see, I'm here today because of the hard work that I've done. I've sort of pulled myself up. I've had a lot of effort, work, and study. I've taken up uh, meaningful work in my vocation, and, and my achievements are because I've put the time in. I've taken the licks. I've gotten myself here. Others of you might say, maybe even from a Christian point of view, hey, I'm living according to the standard of what I see is right and wrong in the world. I don't tend to bump that up against scripture. I just kind of go on what I see and it's working okay for me thus far. So how are you gonna say that the wisdom of the world doesn't work or it can't cut it? Two quick responses to that. Paul actually anticipates that sentiment of pride that you and I might have and he replies to it directly in this passage. Pick up in chapter four, verse seven. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you've received it, like, what do you have that you didn't receive? Meaning you didn't come with it, it was given to you. And of the things that you've received, why do you boast as though you didn't receive them? 
And so Paul's saying, if you think you've made it here on your own, where do you think that you got any of the stuff that you have that's turned out to a positive in your life? Where'd you get the gifting that you claim to have? Where did you get the skills that you claim to own? Where did those come from? Hey, hey, where did you get the instincts that you would just say, I've kind of always had those things since I was a kid. Hey, where did you get the strength? Where did you get the know-how? Where did you get the intuition that's paid out for you in your vocation? Hey, where did you get the things that have given you success? Paul's saying, why do you boast as though you just sort of came prepackaged with that stuff? No, you received it and it came from God. The wisdom of man isn't gonna cut it in this world. The second reply to that thought is that all man-centered wisdom has a shelf life. All man-centered wisdom has a shelf life. As I was thinking through this this week, my mind shot back to this really chilling, this really chilling moment back in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. You might know the story of the the prophet Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal, the worldly wise prophets of his day. He's confronting them, calling them to deal, to come into account with the presence of a living God. And so they're trying to have something to say for themselves in that moment. In their moment of desperation, they're gathering for themselves all the way of wisdom that they had acquired to give something to say before the presence of a living God. And there's this subtle line at the end of that account that if you read it and you're patient with it, it'll send chills down your spine because it shows the emptiness of the wisdom of this world to be able to do anything for you in the moment of account, in our moment of darkness. It says this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 29. As midday passed, these worldly wise prophets, it says they raved on, but notice this, but there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. This moment when grabbing for the wisdom of this world and the progressive ideologies that make something of us and make something of, of, of all the ways in which we can figure ourselves out and elevate ourselves in the world, there's a way in which all that seems to be working well and good until it doesn't. And in that moment, there was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention this chilling line about the wisdom of the world where it all seems to be well and good. All man-centered wisdom has a shelf life. It will run out. It may seem to work. And that's true until it doesn't. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do? So, so let no one be deceived. He gives us two directives in this part part of the first part of the passage. We've looked at the first. Don't be deceived. Don't play games with this. So what should we do in the positive? He says, I want the wise to become a fool. That's the positive direction. Let the wise become a fool. Pick up in 18. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise, thinks that he's something in this age, here's what I actually want him to do. I want him to become a fool so that he might become wise. That's a crazy line. It feels like a paradox. What does he mean, become a fool in order to become wise? Well, here's what he means. Look away from and forsake all that the world says you need to have and all that the world says you need to be in order to be superior, in order to be acceptable, in order to be advanced, in order to sort of have the acceptable paradigm and worldview and ideologies to sort of say the right things. And he says, I want you to look away from that. Look away from the mantras of I'm enough. Forsake the pride of the world that says, I can figure this out on my own. I want you to look away from that. I want you to forsake that. And I want you to let the humility of God and the crucified Christ 
melt your pride. Let the humility of God himself in the crucified Christ, the one who has all power, who didn't grasp for power, but submitted himself to ones who thought they had power and exercised it over him, let the humility of God in the crucified Christ melt your pride. To become a fool is to look of the wisdom of God in a crucified Christ. And here's what, the, here's what it is to become a fool in the world, but wise in the eyes of God, is to look on the crucified Christ and to say this, in him alone do I find my identity. In him alone, in that bloodied Jewish man on a tree who is the son of God, he is my covering, he is my worth, he is my security, he is my way in this world. And so to become a fool is not to become foolish, to be clear. He's not saying become foolish. He is saying, I want you to look upon and I want you to give your allegiance to the crucified Christ. That was a scandal to the Jews. That was foolish to the Gentiles. That was weakness to the Romans. It's small-brained and oppressive and antiquated in our world today. But to be clear, to become a fool in the world is to give your yes to Jesus. Body, soul, and mind, he gets the say over my life. That is foolishness in this world. The crucified and risen Lord from the dead. And yet it's wisdom in the eyes of God because he's the foundation of the church. He's the king who actually will have a kingdom that endures forever and will not be shaken. So you say, what does that look like functionally? What does that look like practically? Well, Paul, the man writing these words, is a perfect example to what it means to become a fool in the eyes of the world and yet become wise in the eyes of God. Think about Paul. He was a man Jewish by ethnicity, Jewish by religion. He had a pure pedigree. He had social standing that anybody would have admired in his day, respect of his people, the best education of his day. His trajectory, for all intent and purposes, was upward and to the right. And yet, this same Paul writes this in Philippians chapter three. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has worldly wisdom, I have more, he says. <laughs> I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But notice what he's gonna say. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ, foolishness to the world. Indeed, I count everything as loss. For this, for, uh, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, foolishness to the world, but wisdom to God. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might have Jesus, the wisdom of God, and be found in him, not a righteousness of my own that I've put together from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, the wisdom of God, foolishness to the world. And I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to share with him in his sufferings. That sounds like foolishness to the world. I want to become like him in his death. That sounds like foolishness to the world. But that by any means possible, I would also attain the resurrection of the dead, the wisdom of God. 
And so it's not that Paul's pedigree and background was all bad, but what Paul is saying is that true Christianity is a kind of faith where even the good stuff in your life is released and given up if it means that you can have more of Jesus and formed more deeply by his cross and his rising. That's true Christianity. And so the first move of this passage, Paul is saying, I I want you to have an awareness that there's a deception in this world Proverbs 14, 12 says it this way. There's a way to man that seems right in his own eyes, but in the end it leads to death, right? There's a deception to be avoided. The second move of this passage, though, he's gonna bring this wisdom and apply it now to the divisions he's been talking about over church leaders. The second move is a direction on how to receive leaders in the church. And so if you're just jumping in with us, Since early in chapter one, Paul has been dealing with the way that they've been splitting over church leaders and giving their division to some over others. And now here at the beginning of chapter four, he's gonna bring this thing full circle and give a positive vision. I'm gonna give a positive sentence for how the church should view its leaders. Here he says it in chapter four, verse one. After all of his deconstruction, he reconstructs it with one sentence. This is how one should regard us. This is how I want you to think of us. This is how I want you to look at us, leaders in the church. He says this, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. This is how God wants the church to view its leaders. So so it doesn't say, view us as personalities so that you can pick your favorite. It it doesn't say, view us as spiritual celebrities or spiritual professionals or spiritual performers that you can follow as fans. It doesn't say that. There is two words given to you and to me for how our view of church leaders ought to be shaped. And here's what's even crazy for me to say this. Here's a view how I should see myself, how the rest of our elders and pastors, not just how you should see us, but how we should understand ourselves. He gives two words, servant and steward. One scholar says it this way, being man-centered, the Corinthians were giving their allegiance to men. They were men of God, but they were still only men. And that was the way the world behaved and taught, and it still does today. Whenever the church follows big names and becomes man-centered, it's aping the world. No, says Paul, don't boast in men. You're not servants of such people, but do you realize they are your servants? And so giving honor and esteem to men of character, leaders of character, and, and those who've done faithfully, that's one thing. But this whole issue of allegiance is entirely different. I think Josh, Pastor Josh said it really helpful last week. There's a warning in this passage, don't confuse the church's leaders with the church's God. Don't confuse the church's leaders with the church's God. So these two words, servants and stewards. As servants, leaders in the church are to be given strictly to the master's business. In some way I feel a bit vulnerable leading you in this because this is, I'm reading my own job description from scripture to you. Leaders are to be strictly given to the master's business. 
were to be given, strictly given to his prerogative, strictly given to his authority. That's what a servant is. As a steward, here's what's interesting. It's the same Greek word for housekeeper. For housekeeper. Paul says, here's what I want you to see leaders in the church. They're servants and housekeepers. As a steward, you're not measured by your personality or your charisma or your social media following, although that's what we typically like to do. You don't measure stewards that way. As a steward, I don't get to say whatever I want and I don't get to teach whatever I want. As a steward, I don't get to lead in whatever direction I want or just create initiatives because I think, well, after all, that's what a missional person does. No, 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 no. As a steward, the leaders of the church are judged and measured entirely based on their faithfulness to the master. A good housekeeper isn't one who just rearranges on their own prerogative. Well, I just thought you wanted the paper towels over here. No, 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 I want the paper towels over there. A good housekeeper keeps them where the master of the house wants them. This is why he says in verse two, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So this church is what you're to be looking for in your pastors and leaders. We might do a lot of things. We might do a lot of things. But we should never, to, never seek to do less than this. And we should never seek to move beyond this, no matter what our reasoning might be. This is our task. And so what comes next in verses three to five follows in this same line of thought, applying relating to your church leaders, how you ought to do that. But it's also helpful, I want you to listen to what we read next because it's also helpful in how you and I ought to understand ourselves in the midst of the rat race of winning people's approval in the world, what people think of us in the world. He's applying this to leaders, but it's also helpful broadly to us. Notice what he says in verse three. He says, with me, it's a, it's a really small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, he says. So because of what it is to be a servant and a steward, Paul says, it matters very little to me. He says, it's a small thing if you wanna judge me. <laughs> it's a small thing if you wanna judge me. It's a small thing if you wanna take my side on issues or not. It's a small thing if you wanna have me as your favorite preacher or not. It's a small thing. I love the way he's so rooted in Jesus here. It speaks deep into my chest. It's a small thing if you want to judge me or not. If you want to talk about how bad my sermon was at lunch, it doesn't matter to me. A person's large following doesn't necessarily mean they have the favor of God. A person's large following doesn't necessarily mean they've been judged faithful by God. It doesn't matter to me how you want to judge me. On the other side, a person's small following or their rejection doesn't necessarily mean that they've been judged unfaithful or unworthy by God. Well, that's a small church over there. That's a small pastor. He might be the most faithful one in the city. Interesting thought here, huh? What matters isn't so much your judgments of me. What matters is whether or not I'm building, or any church leader is building in alignment with the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This is why Paul says, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> what you think of me matters very little. I try not to think much of myself as though my verdict is the one that carries. Notice verse four. He goes, 
listen, <laughs> I love the way he says this. I'm not aware of anything against myself. I don't have any beef with me. But that doesn't mean I'm innocent. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Why? Because it's the Lord who judges. People have taken this verse in all kinds of wrong ways to remove themselves from accountability and remove themselves from any sort of input. And they've missed the point entirely. What Paul is saying, this is amazing, is he's like, I'm no more justified by my good opinions of myself than by your good opinions of me. I might, my, I might be innocent in my own mind, but that doesn't mean I'm clear with God. And you might have me innocent in your mind, but that doesn't help me with God either. God alone is the one who judges, and I'm not worried about whether I'm gonna make the judgment because I know how God judges. He's told me that in his own wisdom, it's Christ crucified. That's why I look to the cross. That's why I look to what's folly with man, but wise with God. That's why I'm happy to be a fool in the world. That's why I'm happy to out myself as a housekeeper in God's church. It's for the sake of the cross. That's how God judges, and I'm gonna give myself to that. I'm gonna give myself to him. He's gonna be my covering. He's gonna be my defense. He's my advocate. And so Paul is saying, stop dividing over your favorite preachers. Stop judging them based on their platform or their prestige or their following as though attaching yourself to one over another is gonna make something of you because of who you like to podcast or listen to or follow or say, I'm a this person guy or gal. He says, God's the judge and it's not you. And here's something that like stuck in my chest today that's coming out of this. A pastor's job is to be faithful to God not win your approval. Man, I get that wrong so much, you know. But clearly what Paul is saying is that a pastor's job is to be faithful to God, not win the approval of people. A pastor can't make, I can't make anything of you. None of our elders can make anything of you, no matter how much you're friends with us. And it's like, oh, I'm friends with us. We can't make anything of you. Only Jesus can make something of you. Faithful leaders aren't to be pitted against one another as competition, but what Paul is saying is, we're your servants. There's, there's, we're actually, faithful leaders are actually the gift of God to the church for your benefit. So look at what he says in verse five. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He'll bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and he'll disclose the purposes of the heart and then each one will receive his condemnation before God. Hey, here's the bottom line of this. You don't have to judge pastors as though that's your job and as though God were inept to do that. Here's what Paul just said. When they've gone sideways, it'll be clear and their judgment's obvious. But when it hasn't been so obvious, God will actually expose true from false on the great day. No one's gonna get away with anything. He will expose what's genuine from a fraud maybe even more chilling. He will uncover what looked like faithfulness by appearances, but was actually dark in the heart. You're not gonna get around the all-seeing eye of God. And so let's move to the finish today because he gives us this deception to be avoided, right? But he also gives this way to receive church leaders. But then finally, tucked in the middle of all this, he's gonna give us this assurance to be embraced so taking the panorama of the work we've done with me this far, 
Paul has instructed the church, I want you to become a fool. That's what Paul said to you today. I want you to become a fool. And just so that it's not just the church getting a word, oh yeah, by the way, leaders, you're servants and housekeepers. There's a Sunday pick-me-up for you. Everyone was coming, you know what I want to be called today? A fool. And I want my pastors to be called housekeepers. Sounds like a nourishing word. But for a culture like theirs and a culture like ours that values things like status and platform and prestige, a title like fool and housekeeper is hardly something to be desired, right? Our instincts might even tell us, like, I want to move on past that stuff. I want to rise above those kind of low titles. I I don't want to settle for that. So here's the question I want us to feel as we look at this assurance. How is it that Paul can tell you and me with such confidence to embrace these things. And the reason is that tucked in the middle of all this, there's this powerful assurance, Paul is doing the work of an optometrist. He's trying to help us to see clearly, maybe even for the first time, notice with me verse 21. He says, so let no one boast in men. I want you to hang on this line with me for a second. He's about to say something crazy. I don't want anybody to boast in men. Why? Because all things are yours. Just imagine what he just said there. What's amazing about the Greek, looking at this original language, all things actually just means that. All things. So what does all things include? All things. The reason you don't, shouldn't boast in men yourself or others, is because everything already belongs to you. Doesn't this sound like the echoes of Romans chapter eight, where Paul says, if he didn't spare his own son for us, then how much more along with him will he give us all things? The reason you don't have to fight and scratch and grab and claw and pick yourself up and elbow for your way in the world is because everything belongs to you. He says, it doesn't matter if it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these church leaders you've been arguing about, they belong to you, but it's not just them, it's the world, life, death, present, future, everything is yours. You've got Christ and he threw in the kitchen sink too and Christ belongs to God. And so he says, you're a fool in this world. He calls me a housekeeper but what a small thing to take on titles like that in the world now when everything belongs to me. Call me what you want. See me however you would. Call me small-brained and antiquated for believing the Bible's still true and Jesus is still the only way. Call me whatever you would. I'll be a servant in the house of God. All things are mine. You belong to Jesus, he's God's own son, and there's this rule in the world. All creation knows this rule. Everything belongs to God, and if you're resurrected from the dead, then you can have whatever you want. God the Father has given everything to Jesus as an inheritance. And Jesus, by his grace and through the finished work of the cross and his empty tomb, he's now chosen to share everything that belongs to him for all who look onto him now to share that with us. So he gives us this list. What belongs to you? Life belongs to you. Life is a gift. Not just the air in your lungs, although that's obvious, the forgiveness of sins. Love and the adoption 
of the Father belongs to you. Hey, death belongs to you. This is crazy. Death belongs to you. It's a gift. Because of what Jesus has done, death is not your enemy. Death is your servant. (laughs) Death trembles at Jesus and his people. Why? Because death knows its place as a servant, not an enemy. Death is your servant to usher you into the presence uninterrupted of God Almighty. The present and the future belong to you. There's not a single moment right now or out there in the future where all the goodness of God won't be absolutely working for all of your goodness, even in suffering. Even in suffering. The present belongs to you. You don't gotta fear being in a different location. You're exactly where you're supposed to be because God's actually there with you. And out into the future, you'll be okay there too. Nothing is withheld from you. And then he even throws in the whole world. (laughs) If life and death and the present, the future weren't enough, he's like, hey, the whole world is yours. Everything belongs to Jesus. He belongs to God and he shared it all with you. That's a crazy, massive, you're seeing for the first time the grandeur of the gospel. You say, okay, here's the big finish. Wait a second, I'm, I'm actually coming into church today and I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread. I don't feel like anything belongs to me. My life has just been one suffering after another. And you're gonna sit here and tell me today that everything belongs to me? My experience is that everything is being stripped from me. This is why Paul is such a good teacher for us. Paul is so driven by the future hope of what's been purchased for him in the gospel that what's fixed out there in the future that is so sure for him affects the way he lives now in the present. It affects now because of where I'm headed. So maybe you're here today and you go, I'm on the wrong side of a good circumstance. The church that still believes Jesus and the Bible is in the culture's eyes on the wrong side of history. And it feels like maybe you're hanging on by a thread. Here's what Paul is trying to say. It may not seem like everything is yours right now. In fact, it may feel like everything's being taken away from you right now. That might be true. But it will only be that way for a little while longer. We are nearer to that day than when we first believed. Do you realize, church, this is an amazing thing to proclaim today. On the great day before the face of God, the CEO who has the world's riches in his possession, the CEO on the great day before the face of God will have no more in possessions than the hotel maid. No more in possession. So what a small thing it is right now to be seen as a fool or a servant in the eyes of the world. For a Christian, your security is not in your achievements. It's not in your assets. It's not in your status. It's not in your position. For a Christian, for a Christian, all of the way that you have security is through the wisdom of God in a crucified and risen Christ. If he did not spare his own son for us, then how much more along with him will he give us all things, things like life and death, the present, the future, the whole world, and most importantly, his love and presence. And so here's my finish today. Here's the final line. In a world full of divisions, and there's so many, in a world full of power grabs 
and climbing over people and elbowing for position and clamoring for attention. The way of the Christian is different. The way of the Christian is different. Let the wise become a fool and live your life as a servant to God because the whole world belongs to you. The whole world belongs to you. You don't gotta reach or clamor or scream or put bumper stickers on your car that say, notice me, I'm important. Because God's taken notice of you even through the blood of his own son. And he's even got him out of the tomb so that his resurrection would be your resurrection. And you stand with him and he stands with God and everything belongs to him and he shared it all with you. It helps you to hold a little bit more loosely to the things of this world, amen? Let's pray. Father, we need your help to see <laughs> even as I preach today with your people, I just want to confess that I don't see the world and your gospel the way that your world just told us how it is. And so would you please teach us to hold a bit more loosely to the things of this world? Would you please teach us to not see people as hurdles to get over to find our bigger and more prominent, more powerful place in the world. But would you help us to see the place of a fool and the place of a servant and then find wisdom with you and then as a gift, you've given everything to us, especially your own son, that his own innocent blood was shed for us we didn't deserve that, much less anything else you would give. So God, would you please form us by this word? Holy Spirit, would you please attach to our thoughts as we move from today what we need to retain and keep thinking about it and be formed by it? We offer this in Jesus' name, amen.